Well, I readily admit that I'm not perfect. And that's especially true when it comes to DIY. I'm very willing to have a go, but my lack of knowledge and skill soon becomes evident, as does my lack of patience as well. You'll find that Tony smiles doesn't all of the time. When we moved to our home, uh, new home, last year, we made far too many trips to a well-known Swedish store. And I believe it's God's judgment on all men like me. Wonderful furniture, but flat-packed. It should be so easy, yet it's always harder than the instructions make out. I blame the illustrations Uh, It can't be me, surely. I guess it must be. But my son Dominic, he finds it all, son-in-law Dominic, he finds it all very, very easy and he puts these things together really quickly. But I'm sitting there with the instructions upside down trying to work out and I always seem at the end of it not to have it as it should be. Although they give you a blueprint of the finished article My attempts never seem to end up exactly like that. I seem to discover that I've got bits left over at the end when I've finished. And despite looking great from the outside, when you get to use the thing, something doesn't quite work. I've got a file on my desk, and whenever I pull the drawer out, it seems to drop to the floor because I've obviously missed something somewhere along the line. The missing element was necessary, and somehow I managed to avoid it. The Torah, the book of the law in the Old Testament, in that God gave guidelines for the people of God. If they were to live as God intended, they should follow the maker's instructions and obey his commands. But as we read through the Old Testament, we find that people didn't always follow those instructions, and they reaped the consequences. And what's more, sometimes people scrupulously followed the instructions. From the outside, everything looked perfect. In practice, something was wrong, not operating properly. There was a vital element that was missing. The spirit behind the letter of the law. And that's the reason why God sent his son into the world, to bring the message, the word, in a new way himself, to be that word in a new way, and to enable the message to become a reality, especially through his death and his resurrection. If you like, Jesus was the blueprint of perfect love. He came to enable us to have a fresh start, to enable us by his spirit to live according to the maker's instructions. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, it's as though Jesus is being presented, if you like, as the new Moses, with a fresh, liberating insight into the Torah, A new Christian ethic that's all about the heart, that's all about love. Jesus didn't dismiss the Jewish law, he fulfilled it. 
He urged his followers to apply it and yet to exceed its demands. And this would affect the way that people behaved. Their behavior towards Jews, but also Gentiles alike. The heart of Jesus transforming all of their relationships. So let's have a look this morning at what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount in these uh, particular words. And as he was encouraging his people to be salt and light in the world, to be blessed, but also to be a blessing to others. First of all, there's that familiar saying, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus really makes his listeners think And we'll spend more time on this saying than the others. I'll allude to the others a little bit more quickly. But Matthew's readers lived in an occupied and divided Jewish society. There was a contrast between the rich and the poor, those who were slaves and those who were free. And they were tense times. And soon his followers would face persecution too. So Jesus needed to communicate that eye for eye was meant to, not meant to encourage retaliation in the law. It wasn't meant to uh, facilitate a kind of tit-for-tat approach to living. That was to miss something vital in the law. Rather, the idea behind the law was that an eye for an eye was better than an escalating argument. That's in the Jewish tradition what it was all about. In other words, uh, if someone's uh, um, eye was damaged and you damaged theirs, that that was better than getting things out of proportion. In other words, you hit me, I wallop you. You shoot me, I blow you up. Can you see what I mean? How things get escalate. So the idea in the law at that time was actually to be proportionate. But Jesus was suggesting something new. He was not just um, limiting things to collateral damage. He takes the spirit of that further and he offers a new creative, restorative approach to justice. The New Testament scholar, uh, Tom Wright, is very, very helpful here. And here's the gist of what he says on this passage. He says that if Jesus teaches uh, us, if Jesus was teaching that if someone strikes you, in other words, with the back of the right hand to the right cheek, that actually in those days was an insult. It was something that would be done to a slave or to a child or in that culture, even, God forbid, a woman. And he was saying that you are not to perpetuate, if that happens to you, by responding. Now, I think that's easier said than done. If someone wallops me, the human nature in me is to wallop them back. (laughs) I'm not perfect, as I said right at the beginning. But Jesus challenges us, and he says what he wants us to think about is to offer the left cheek. Now, what did that actually mean? Well, if you offered your left cheek, that meant that the person had to hit you with the right hand 
with the flat of the hand and they were then having to treat you as an equal and not as a slave. That was what was behind it. So in other words, he was saying, if someone is aggressive towards you, you act in love. Actually, stand your ground. Be who God has called you to be. Replace revenge with love and be secure in who you are in Christ. Don't let things escalate, but actually take a different approach. Be subversive. Now, if we see this here in this particular uh, challenge, wow, we see that he's beginning to find a really different disciplined form of communication that he was urging. And we see it in Jesus himself. When he was abused, he didn't just teach this, he lived it. When he was taunted, he didn't respond. He absorbed the evil and the pain. It was the mysterious victory of love. And he prayed for his persecutors because he was secure in who he was, God's son who loved the world, and you cannot take that away. I will go on loving you. We see it in Jesus. He is the blueprint. We shall remember it this Easter. And he surprises people with his discipline, his dignity, his grace, his generosity, his love constantly in the face of evil. The missing element is that of love. And so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount goes on. The law entitled an injured party to take an aggressor to court in order to restore their honor. But Jesus teaches that honor and defending one's rights doesn't matter compared to the love of God. If a creditor takes your shirt, the very shirt off of your back, then force them to confront what they're actually doing. Don't let them abuse your humanity. Give them your coat as well. Shame them with your nakedness. For God loves you. You are secure in him. If a Roman soldier exercises his right under the law and makes you carry a pack one mile, which is what they could do, then take control. Go the extra mile in love. Don't do it because you have to. Do it because you're taking control of your life and love will be the driving force. And Jesus goes on stressing generosity and love to neighbors, urging them to give to all beggars. Well, actually, (laughs) that's probably impossible. You'd soon become bankrupt if you gave to everybody who asked you. Certainly a challenge to us on the streets of Westminster. But he uses a kind of cartoon, if you like here, hyperbole, to actually make his point. When people come to you, what is your response? Are you prepared to give to those who ask? We should let the poor shape who we are, direct how we live, rather than be controlled by the lure and demands of wealth. We're to store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. So he uses this exaggeration to say, do you give? Don't give because you have to. Give 
beyond what's required. Go on giving because that's what we see in Christ. The Lord being our provider and our judge. And all this is summed up in the passage with that phrase, love your enemies. We're to love all our enemies, whether we like them or not. Why? Because that's what we see in Jesus and we see in God. God loves all his children, even those who are against him. He never goes on failing to love and calling them to love in return. Now, we might think in this respect of enemies on uh, a global scale. We might think of enemies at different parts of the world, possibly. Well, actually, sometimes that's easier than the person who's very close to you. Try to apply this to those that you don't get on with in your family. Try to apply it to the next-door neighbor that drives you mad. Try to apply it to the person in this church who has upset you and you're doing your best to avoid them. How does that make you feel when it comes closer to home? And that's what Jesus was trying to do. He wanted love to drive everything. And he calls us to love even our enemies. We were created to live generously and graciously before God and towards others. It is our maker's instructions. It is who God is. How we experience in him, in Jesus, the blueprint of such love. Now in our epistle lesson, if I can go to that just for a moment briefly, Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that he is a builder. Actually, all Christian leaders, in that sense, are builders, seeking to build upon the foundation of Christ. We're all building, hopefully, on the foundation of Christ, but we become the temple of God. And then Paul was saying to the Corinthian Christians, they were part of a, a living, growing, holy temple, a home for the Spirit of God, a precious temple that belonged to God. And therefore, they must love one another. Because when there were factions, even amongst God's people, let alone outside, those factions weakened the very structure of the temple, the temple of God, and could lead to the tearing down of that temple. A lack of love and unity is also an offense to God, Paul was saying, for we belong to one another and to Christ. We mustn't be separated. So Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. We need to remember that when we meet together. We have a general church meeting next week. Fortunately, in this church, it's usually a fairly harmonious affair, but I've been in some meetings where the church gets together and you think, where is Christ? For we seem to be at one another rather than together with one another, working things through in love.
And that's why Jesus calls us to radical generosity and not retaliation. That's why he sees our neighbor as including our enemies. It's tough stuff, but it's by God's grace that we can get there. And the missing element when things go wrong is when we miss out on the spirit behind the instructions, the love, and we miss out on the prayer that goes with it. Matthew 5, verse 48, summarizes this first section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here we all think, oh, the temptation is to give up. How can I be perfect? Well, be perfect is a Greek term. And as I was reading for this sermon, I found that uh, there's an Aramaic word uh, which is possibly lying behind uh, this word, meaning be whole or be complete, which fits in very well with our text for the year. Perhaps being perfect is being fully aligned with God's will, being complete in God, being at peace and with God, in a mature and close relationship with God having an undivided heart of love and being secure in that love. You will know that John Wesley preached about the idea of Christian perfection or perfect love or entire sanctification. I haven't time to explore that fully this morning. I'd love to do so. But in short, he believed it was possible for uh, a Christian, somebody who believed in God, to enable to come to a point of spiritual maturity that it could be wrought in the soul in such a way that there was perfect love. And he bases it on uh, verse 48 and other passages as well. And he qualifies, of course, what he means by this, and that is for another time. But for Wesley, perfection in our relationship with God was the goal. Actually, it should drive us on to actually be more and more in love with God and for his love to be more and more evident in our lives, characterized by the way we express ourselves before people and before God, that we are his holy, pure, sanctified people. I wonder whether us Methodists have lost our way a little bit sometimes. We see our Methodism in whether we sing enough Wesley hymns or go to enough meetings or whether we've got our membership ticket. Do we really remember that the Methodist people were raised to spread scriptural holiness? That's what we were raised for. And that means being perfect in love. That is our goal. Well, with the benefit of insight, we can look at the Jewish people in Jesus' day and we can be critical. We can say, well, they were missing out on something. They were keeping to the letter of the law, but they'd missed on the spirit of the law. But there's one thing that the Jewish people did get right, very much so, is that they were so thankful for what God had done for them in the past. How they had been set free from slavery in Egypt, 
And the reason why they paid attention to the letter of the law and they kept all these things was because they were a thankful people, grateful that they had been saved. What about us? Are we grateful for what we shall mark in this communion service? That Jesus died for us and rose again and sets us free and forgives us. For if we are thankful, then we should want to seek to live his way. We should want perfect love to be our goal, even though we know we mess up. We return time and time again to be forgiven and to go out with a new vision and a new determination that our saving Lord Jesus will enable us to live in love gratefully, graciously, and generously. Are we thankful? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not a suggestion, it's our high calling, it's our Lord's command. And I love the Message Bible's rendering of the verse. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. If you get a chance to read this passage in the message version, have a look at it. It's all about perfect love, the goal of the people called Methodist, the journey of a lifetime, impossible in our own strength. But as Jesus said on one occasion, with human beings, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible.